Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. If this is the first time you're listening, don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app, and that way you'll be sure to get all future episodes. If you need our past episodes, you can check those out at our website, thenexttrack.com. Today, I'm pretty happy. We haven't seen this guy in a while. Andy Doe is joining us for a discussion. Andy, how are you? It's great to see you. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back on the show. We wanted to do another Ask Andy episode. And the first one we did a few months ago was based on some questions that listeners sent in. But today, I had two questions for Andy. So I invited him on the show to talk about ohms and decibels. These are two numbers that we often see in specifications. Not long ago, we did an episode where I was saying that I wanted to buy a new amplifier, and Andy was helping us understand the difference between amplifiers. And if you look at the specs for an amplifier, you'll see that ohms are mentioned when you see power. Now, watts are another number, and we'll have to do a whole episode entitled, What is a Watt? at some point in the future. But for now, I'd like to get an idea of what ohms mean when we're talking about audio. Okay, so uh, the ohm is an SI unit. It is used to measure electrical resistance or impedance, which is the equivalent of resistance in an alternating current circuit. And what this means really is it's a measure of how difficult it is to push electricity through something. Quite often when describing electrical circuits, people use the analogy of, of a pipe where um, the, the current that can flow through a pipe, the, the, the number of amps is equivalent to the volume of water that can travel through it. The pressure with which you push that water through it was the equivalent of the, the voltage. And the resistance, uh, which is measured in ohms, is equivalent to the, the diameter of the pipe, the combination of the diameter and the length of the pipe, which makes it difficult to push water through. And in the same way, in an electrical circuit, there are obstacles to electricity flowing through it. And the higher the resistance, the larger the number of ohms, the harder it is to push electricity through there, the less electricity will flow through for any given voltage or kind of electrical pressure. So that's what the ohm is a unit of. It's electrical resistance, or in the case of an alternating current circuit like a, a loudspeaker, uh, it's called impedance. So you see ohms on the back of your loudspeaker. Each speaker, I have two sets of speakers here, and they're both 8-ohm speakers, but my subwoofer is 10-ohms. So does this mean that the 10-ohm speaker has bigger wires to let more electricity in? Kind of. It could be thicker, it could be shorter, since the resistance of an electrical cable is a function both of what it's made from, how thick it is, and how long it is. And in a loudspeaker, normally what you have in the physical driver is a coil of wire, but in reality, in a loudspeaker unit, it's quite likely that you'll have crossover circuits and, and other things. So we're not only, and in the case of your subwoofer, uh, it's an active subwoofer, isn't it? It has its own amplifier inside it, yeah. Right. But what's important about the impedance ratings on your speakers and your amplifier is that you do not damage either your speakers or your amplifier. Now, the way that a amplifier could be damaged is 
if the impedance of the speakers was too low, if the resistance was too low, then uh, too great a current could flow through it and damage the circuit in the amplifier. And the way that you could damage the loudspeaker would be by driving too much electricity through it and overheating it. Uh, the way that you would do that is, is by turning it up too high. And the loudspeakers will have a rating in watts, which I will explain in the later episode entitled What the Watt is What. But for now, the ohms rating is about protecting your amplifier from a loudspeaker which has such a low rating it is almost the equivalent of short-circuiting that amplifier. And so what's important is that your speakers do not have too low an impedance. So if your amplifier is expecting 8-ohm speakers, then the speakers you connect to it must be at least 8-ohms. Now that may mean that you connect two 4-ohm speakers in series, which will add up to 8-ohms, or you use one 8-ohm speaker. If you have a amplifier that can drive 4-ohm speakers, 8-ohm speakers are not going to do it any harm. So the lower the impedance of the speaker, the more power you need from the amplifier. The lower the impedance of the speaker, the greater the current that will travel through it at any given voltage. Right, because this is a measure of resistance, so it's the opposite of the, the power that's coming into it. That's right. Okay. So isn't one way that you can alter this by putting resistors on the circuit board? I remember my brief experience fiddling with a soldering iron, or as you pronounce it... Soldering iron? Yes. I remember that the resistors were these little brown cylindrical things with different colored bands on them, and the colored bands were some sort of way of indicating what they did. Would you just simply add resistors in a circuit board to... to to reach the impedance that you want? In theory, that would be that would be possible. Uh, the tricky thing about using those tiny little resistors uh, is that if you wanted to add another 4 ohms of resistance to your 4 ohm speaker, you would need quite a, quite a big resistor. I have done this. Um, a number of years ago, I bought a pair of Behringer studio monitors that were rated at 4 ohms. I got them a little cheaper than usual. They're great speakers, but they're rated at 4 ohms, and I'm all 8 ohms. So I asked an audio engineering guy I knew, what do I have to do? He says, well, you got to go out and get yourself a 4-ohm resistor. So I'm thinking I'm going to pop down a radio shack and get one of these little you know, things, and I'll just solder it into the speaker terminal. Well, it turns out the thing I eventually bought was this huge heat sink of a, of a, of a resistor. It's about as big as a Hershey candy bar. And it doesn't have little leads or little wires coming out of it. It has cables coming out of it. I mean, the thing is huge. Yeah, you need beefy ones because otherwise they're going to overheat. Well, what's those dinky little ones that you put on circuit boards then? Are they just like a fraction of a fraction of an ohm? It's not that they're a fraction of a fraction of an ohm. They could be one ohm. They could be a million ohms. The thing about those tiny little ones is that they will catch fire if you try and put the kind of current through them that you're going to need to drive a decent pair of speakers. If you think about uh, one bar in an electric heater, that's a, a thousand watts. Uh, when you pass a thousand watts of electricity through something, that's how hot it gets. That's the amount of heat that, that comes off it. So your 100 watt speakers, if you add a resistor that's providing the same resistance as the speaker, it's going to be, it's going to be kicking out 50 watts of heat. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get warm. It's going to get really, really warm. 
So my current speakers never get warm. Is that simply because the resistance of the speakers is matched to the resistance of the amplifier? So it's two things. Your loudspeakers are able to do something with the energy other than convert it to heat because they're converting it into, into movement. But also they are big. And so any heat that is, is converted from electrical energy into, into heat has a lot of space to, to dissipate. I had never really paid attention to this before. I just connected speakers to amplifiers. But this week I bought a new Make Louder box, and we'll talk about that in a future episode. And one of the things that this Make Louder box has on the back is a little switch that lets you change from 4 ohms to 8 ohms. And this is why I went and looked at my speakers to check what they were. So that means that this amplifier has an option to engage a resistor to go from 8 ohms to 4 ohms, but that would mean that you're going to get a lot more heat in the amplifier, is that? Not, not necessarily, not necessarily, because there are other things you could do on the amplifier. So if you've got access to the inside of the amplifier, then you can make the circuit expect a 4 ohm or 8 ohm load in in other ways than simply sticking a huge resistor in the way. Once once the wires reached the speaker, all you can do is put the put the resistor or another speaker there. But inside the amplifier, that's not necessarily what's happening. And it's not necessarily just sort of burning away half of its power as heat. So I'm looking at the manual for this amplifier, and it says for the two settings, the 8 ohms minimum select this option when you connect speakers with an impedance of 8 ohms or more to the unit, and the 4 ohms minimum select this option when you connect speakers with an impedance of 4 ohms to less than 8 ohms to the unit. Is it common to have speakers at 6 ohms or 5 or 7? Is it common to have 4 ohm speakers? Because again, mine are all 8 ohm, and as I said, I never really paid attention to this. Could I have damaged speakers if I had four ohm speakers and an eight ohm amp? No, no, it's much more likely that uh, you would damage the amp if you had four ohm speakers and an eight ohm amp because... Because the power is not getting out of the amplifier and it's building up in the amplifier. So what what's happening is if you've got four ohm speakers on an eight ohm amp, it's expecting a greater resistance than it's finding. And so a greater current is able to flow at any given voltage. And the components within the amplifier may, may not be able to handle that much current at a given voltage. But what you, what you would find, the place where four ohm speakers are really common is in cars. Almost all car speakers are four ohm. Why is this the case in cars? I'm not really sure, but it may have something to do with the fact that uh, all the electricity in car audio begins life as 12 volts from the battery. And at four ohms, you don't need to step up such a high voltage to deliver the same quantity of power to the speakers. And uh, power is quite often a real concern in the noisy environment of a car. So my amplifier is rated at 160 watts per channel at four ohms, but it has a rating for high dynamic power. Now, I looked this up before the show. It's just essentially a sort of a burst mode that the amplifier can deliver more power when it needs to for a short period of time. And there are four ratings for this at 8, 6, 4, and 2 ohms. And the maximum high dynamic power is 140, 170, 220, and 290. So at 8 ohms, it can deliver less power 
at 2 ohms, it can deliver twice as much as 8 ohms. Right, so this is because at any fixed voltage, it's able to deliver a greater current through a speaker of a, of a lower impedance. And there's going to be a maximum voltage that the amplifier can send out through the speaker outputs. So what I understand from all this is that it's more important than I had imagined to check your speakers if you're buying a new amplifier. It's really important that the amplifier is able to cope with the speakers that you have, which means that if you're buying a new amplifier, you want to check what it says on the back of your speakers. If they're 8 ohms, pretty much any amp you buy is going to be fine. If they're 4 ohms, then you're going to want to make sure that the amplifier you buy is not going to catch fire when you plug it into them. How common are 4 ohm speakers in the home? Um, my previous amp did not have a switch to, to to go from 4 ohms to 8 ohms. Would I be unlikely to have ever gotten 4 ohm speakers in the first place? I think they're more common at the high end. But uh, the important thing to remember about speakers and amplifiers and ohms is that before you replace either your speakers or your amplifier, make sure that they're going to be compatible. And once again, what that means is that the speakers mustn't have a lower impedance, a lower ohm rating than the amplifier is able to cope with. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is Ohm's sidekick, Dr. Decibel. Decibels are a measure of sound, but not exactly sound volume, I think sound power. It's a logarithmic scale, which means that it doubles every time you go up 10 decibels. A decibel is a tenth of a bell. But what I've never understood is that we look at these numbers and they're negative numbers often. So on my new amplifier, I set the volume and let's say it's at minus 40 decibels. If I go up to minus 20, it's not twice as loud. I, I'm, I get confused by this. Can you explain exactly what all this means and, and why do we even see a decibel number on an amplifier? Okay, so uh, the decibel is indeed a, a tenth of a bell, which is named after the uh, Bell system in honor of Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone. And the, the decibel has its roots in telephone line engineering, where telephone engineers were looking for a way to measure how much quieter a signal gets as it travels through a very, very long cable. And so what the decibel really measures is, is not a fixed unit like a, a gram or a mile or a ton, it's measuring a, a ratio. And so the decibel is useful to compare two things, uh, two levels. And for this to be useful, the decibel is always expressed in, in relation to something because it, it, is, it is an expression of a, of a ratio. And the reason that it's a logarithmic scale is because the ears, and actually several of the senses, but the ears and eyes, particularly clearly are able to sense such a vast range of input powers that it can be unhelpful to try and look at these on a, on a linear scale. So if we look at the sound power of the quietest sound that we can hear and we compare that to the power of the loudest sound that you can hear without suffering instantaneous hearing loss. One is about a trillion times as powerful as the other. And 
if you had a, a linear volume control on your fancy new amplifier, what would happen is that it would become almost unbearably loud by the time you turned it up to one and then would not seem to get very much louder as you went from almost unbearably loud to completely unbearably loud at, at, at 10 or 11. So that means I could, it would be unbearably loud at one. It would be even louder at two. And by the time it would get to three, I wouldn't hear it anymore. Yeah, that's right. Because you'd be deaf. Yes. But it, it wouldn't seem to be getting a, a lot louder as you as you went up the scale. And so we, we use a logarithmic scale to make more useful gradations in the in the measured power. And so what, what that means is that a, a 10 decibel increase is, is 10 times the power. I found a web page I'll link to in the show notes with some examples of noise levels. For instance, a quiet rural area is 30 decibels. A quiet suburb, a conversation at home is 50 decibels. 70 decibels, it's cited as the arbitrary base of comparison and it would be living room music, a vacuum cleaner, a freeway at 50 feet, etc. And if you go up to 80 decibels, that's a propeller plane fly over at 1,000 feet, a diesel truck going 40 miles an hour at 50 feet, and, and then you get up to like 100 decibels. It's eight times as loud as 70. That's things like a jet takeoff at 300 meters or an electric hot tuna concert. Every time you go up, it just gets louder and louder and louder exponentially, to the point where the average human pain threshold is 110 decibels, which is an auto horn at one meter. Now, not many people put their ear right next to the horn, but if you're fixing a car, you might be doing that. A thunderclap is 120. And if you go to 150, that's a jet takeoff at 25 meters. And the decibel effect is eardrum rupture. Okay, so uh, what's important to understand about this scale is that this is a scale of db spl and what that means is this is decibels relative to sound pressure level and on this this scale is is starting at, at, at one where one is the threshold of human hearing because any decibel scale has to be relative to something so if something is is loud enough for you to hear then uh, that is one on this scale and then if something is 10 times that power, that's 10 decibels, sometimes 100 times that power, it's 20 decibels. If it's 1,000 times that power, it's 30 decibels. And this is dBSPL. And it's, it's one of a number of commonly used dB scales. When we're working with digital audio, another common one is dBFS, dB full scale. And this is relative to the loudest sound that you can have in a digital recording before it clips. And there we deal in minus dB because we're, we're dealing with fractions of that. Every sound is a bit less than as loud as it can be or zero dBFS. So is that why my amplifier starts by showing me a negative level of decibel? So usually the way that uh, fancy amplifiers volume control works is it cuts down the maximum power that the amplifier can produce. So it will either work its way up from minus infinity or it will work its way up towards zero dB cut. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And, and a good example is when we record this podcast, we use an app called Audio Hijack. 
and I have a peak RMS meter that shows me as I'm speaking. And right now it's between minus three and minus nine dB. So if I get up to zero, that is the clipping level. And I don't want to be up to that level. I want to always keep just a little bit below that level. Yeah, so that's that's really a, a measure of the quantity of headroom you have. So when, once you get to zero, you've got no louder you can go. Right. But why would the amplifier even show me the decibels? The previous amplifier I had, which was also a Yamaha, it had a display and it just had a volume number that went from zero to 50 or something like that. So it was just an arbitrary scale that they had made up. And why is this one showing me decibels? How does that help me? understand what the volume is well it doesn't really does it uh, that's kind of what i was wondering but but it's a fancier amplifier the, the thing is that if you're if you're making an amplifier and you don't want to figure out the scale then it's easy you just put numbers up to 10 or 11, 11. yeah or i mean it could go up to any number it's totally arbitrary but if you figure out how far the control will turn and its total effect and you know that its position has a linear or logarithmic relationship to the volume then you can calculate exactly how far you would have to turn it to make a specific change in the volume and then you can label it but you have to work that out and so they don't do it on cheap amps and anyway it would only confuse people if the scale appears to be moving in the opposite direction to how loud it is so why does my amplifier start at a low negative decibel level and go up to a positive level it goes it can go from minus 80 decibels to plus 16.5 right so this is relative to the nominal power output of your amplifier so in effect it's letting you turn it down well below that and it's it's cutting the output uh, when you get it up to zero this is this is the nominal output at which they're happy to say yeah this behaves the way we described it when we sold it to you if you turn it up higher than that then firstly it's going to be very very loud secondly it's not necessarily going to perform as as accurately or as beautifully as you were expecting it to and and thirdly there's a chance you might damage either your speakers or or your ears, but um, but that's why it will go past zero. The zero in this instance is, is its nominal output. A lot of amplifiers won't let you go up any higher than that. So I think I got it. So zero in this case is a reference point. It's not nothing. It's not zero volume level. Zero in this use is the nominal maximum output that the manufacturer has established. So volume levels are measured in decibels relative to this zero maximum level. It's just a it's just a reference point. So like you say the manufacturer has done the engineering here and they they've and according to their calculations about the components that they've used to build the amp, zero is the maximum level you can set the volume before the components don't deliver efficient sound or at least according to them. Is that right? That's right. But it's not measuring the actual volume of the sound that I'm listening to because it can't know what the sound is like. So is this just, as you said earlier, another way of using the decibel measurement since it's a ratio of something to something else? That's right. So this is decibels relative to the maximum nominal output of the of the amplifier. They've, they've picked the point at which the amplifier is, is working nicely at a good power. And that's it turned all the way up as far as they're concerned. If you want to go past that, that's that's your business. But this is this is relative to an arbitrary level. So in a way, their use of the abbreviation DB is 
not very helpful. The reason that they're using dB is because uh, if you turn it down 10 dB, it will indeed be 10 decibels quieter than it was. You turn it down another 10 dB, it'll be another 10 dB quieter. Those those ratios remain relevant, but always uh, dB is is going to be relative to something, and and before you can understand what uh, a dB level really means, you you have to know what it, it's in relation to. So when I had the amplifier with a scale of zero to fifty, I wouldn't know what would be that maximum point at which things might start clipping or sounding distorted. Maybe it was 40, maybe it was 35. Whereas here, I know that if I get anywhere up near zero, I'm tempting fate. Well, you, you might be tempting distortion, but yes, essentially. I, I don't know exactly at what sound pressure level uh, fate occurs, <laughs> but, but I, I, do know, I do know that if you go above a sound pressure level of somewhere around 190 something, uh, it's no longer possible for it to get louder without distortion because you're then going up and down one atmosphere of, <laughs> of pressure and you can't have less than zero atmospheres of pressure because you will have will have created a total vacuum in the trough between your sound waves and, uh, and then you're in shockwave territory and somewhere around there uh, i think fate may indeed be invoked a sobering thought. Thanks very much, Andy, for explaining all this to us. Yeah, it's always great to have you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Before we wrap things up, we're going to tell you about our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? My next track this week is partly inspired by the announcement of this year's Grammy nominees. One album that was nominated for a Grammy is Brian Eno's Reflection, and we welcomed Peter Chilvers some months ago to discuss the app that he created, which in part replicates Brian Eno's process in, in making this album. But I want to go back to one of my favorite Brian Eno albums, which is probably one of the best of the four song albums, for want of any other description, that he made in the mid-1970s, Another Green World. There's something about the continuity of this album, of the, the color palette of the music in here that ranges from poppy to experimental electronic that has some wonderful Robert Fripp guitar solos and some wonderful synth runs and, and great songs like St. Elmo's Fire and I'll Come Running. Everything merges with the night, which is almost an ambient track. It, it's really, it's my favorite Eno album of that type. And you know, there's so many types of Eno albums from the, the ambient music, from the longer generative compositions to the song albums to the the dancey type albums this is a wonderful period of brian eno's music and, and recently these four albums were re-released on vinyl remastered versions on vinyl and they haven't yet come out on cd and what i'm really hoping is that just like some of his albums from the 1980s that were released a few years ago in new versions with the second CDs of outtakes and alternates that they will have found enough tracks from these four albums in the 1970s to come out with new expanded versions as well. So in the meantime, listen to Another Green World by Brian Eno. I promise you will love this album. Doug? You know, I occasionally mention the music that I used to play on the radio, but there was another kind of music that we used to use in radio, and that's the music that we used as backgrounds for commercials. Like I used to work in these very small markets where we couldn't afford... Uh, to, to actually buy 
production music. So we, we were always on the lookout for instrumental music that the record companies would send us. Bands like Pat Metheny. The first time I ever heard of Pat Metheny was when a local flower shop owner said, here, use this on my commercial. Bands like Stuff and Jeff Beck. And my next track, The Dixie Dregs. The Dixie Dregs were a five-piece. They were from Georgia, I believe. All very well musically educated guys. Uh, they featured violin, guitar, bass, keyboards, and drums. And they did this jazz rock fusion sort of stuff. Although now I've, I see it more as a American progressive rock. But they did these great instrumental albums, very intricate melodies and great time signatures and time changes and all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, you're a basic prog rock band. But I recently rediscovered them after not having heard them for many, many years because, well, as I said, we use the, this kind of music in small markets. But once I started working in larger markets where we actually had real production music, I just stopped listening to the Dixie Dregs. Well, they turned up on Apple Music recently, and I was a little afraid to listen because I thought it might sound dated, but it holds up pretty well. The album I'm going to listen to is their second album. It's called What If. It was produced by Ken Scott, who used to work with George Martin and the Beatles. And like a lot of their albums, I don't want to say that they're they're predictable, but it's consistent with their sound. It's uh, got some hard rock and stuff and got some... Uh, light melodic stuff and some classical sounding stuff. I still kind of like it. The Dixie Dregs, What If, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.